0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Okay, today we're wrapping up the Staffordshire Hoard Project. Originally, this was going to end with Dr. David Simmons, but Dr. Kevin Leahy was good enough to chat with me over the phone regarding the new finds and his theories regarding them, and I think that you'll find them quite interesting. Now, before we get to Dr. Leahy, I just wanted to thank all the experts and institutions for granting us access the public is rarely given access to this depth of information. All too often we're given just a broad and shallow view of how finds like this are dealt with and studied. So to be given such a detailed analysis of the hoard and archaeology in general has been a real treat and I'm very grateful to everyone who's been involved in this project. So thank you very much. And now let's get to the interview.
1: I'm Dr. Kevin Leahy. I'm a national advisor with the Portable Antiquities Scheme and there's a scheme set up to record archaeological finds made by members of the public, mostly but not entirely metal detector users. And we've got over 800,000 finds on our online website, which is an incredible record. And one of the finds that we've got on our website, of course, is the Staffordshire Hoard.
0: Now, how did you get involved with the Staffordshire Hoard?
1: As national advisor, I got an early notice of this. Our locally based fines liaison officer, who is then Duncan Slark sent me an email which started with the word wow and then a stream of exclamation marks and then it said found Staffordshire and this is not all of it and attached with the most incredible array of images. The sort of things that under normal circumstances would make the front cover of, of our annual report. And here they were in serried rows. It was quite incredible. And we convened a meeting the following week to discuss what, whatever we were going to do about this find. By a great coincidence, it was 70 years to the day, probably to the hour, since the first gold was found at Sutton Hoo, which is the last great find of Anglo-Saxon treasure. It seemed that the old gods moved again after 70 years. Curiously, our reaction was just the same as that of Charles Phillips, who excavated Sutton Hoo 70 years before. We were scared stiff. I mean, this was the big one, the one we'd all waited for, but the sense of responsibility when you're faced with something like this, and you're to be the people to bring it home. I mean, we're just archaeologists. We're just people who dig holes and write reports. And we found ourselves in the presence of greatness. And, you know, it's a bit intimidating you know, to be sort of faced with the best the Anglo-Saxons could do. And my word, they were very good.
0: Yeah, I, I was stunned by some of the objects that I saw. So let's go right to the start. So you got the wow email, and were scared stiff and need to start figuring out what you are going to do. Were you part of the initial <coughs> group? who Yes,
1: was- I, I was part of the group, and he needed a catalogue. So my wife and I were given the job of cataloguing the Staffordshire Hoard. And there we sat for weeks in the conservation studio at Birmingham Museum, opening bag after bag of pieces of gold and silver and weighing, measuring, and cataloging them onto a computer database. We couldn't have handled this without the computer database. But the most important thing that we used in the cataloging were a book of salmon pink raffle tickets around which the recording system was based. Because when you're working as quickly as we were, the greatest danger is to miss a number in the sequence which computers don't like, or worse still, give the same number twice. And the raffle tickets made sure that we couldn't do that. It gave us a really robust numbering system that's still in use. They're still using the salmon pink raffle tickets, although they laughed at them at the
0: time. It's a good solution to the problem.
1: Yes, it was. Simple solutions are often the best. And we prepared the catalogue of about three and a half thousand pieces. There is some absolutely stunning material in there. And, of course, every fragment, however small, is still piece of seventh century anglo-saxon archaeology with its story to tell we're now so fortunate to have an absolute arsenal of scientific techniques that we can apply to this you know we can traverse across an object looking at the composition of each strand of filigree we can use a scanning electron microscope to look at wear marks and uh, tooling marks from when the object was made people have said to me is the Staffordshire Hoard more important than Sutton Hoo? Well, that's the wrong question because our finds don't uh, subtract from each other, they multiply each other. Because of the discovery of the Staffordshire Hoard, Sutton Hoo is now more important because we'll look again at the finds from Sutton Hoo in the light of the Staffordshire Hoard and really move knowledge on. Because Sutton Hoo, you you haven't just got the 1.66 kilograms of gold he also got a ship and all of the
0: paraphernalia
1: of a royal household. It was a stupendous find.
0: So as Staffordshire Hoard has multiplied the signs <laughs> of Sutton Hoo, as people talk about Sutton Hoo, the name Redwald gets bandied about. Yeah. Uh, some people believe that it's, it's the burial place of King Redwald. Now that we've seen the sheer amount of wealth at Staffordshire Hoard, Do you still think, or do you think at all, that Sutton Hoo was the burial site for a king? Or does the Find at Staffordshire Hoard force us to re-examine what Sutton Hoo might have been?
1: There's magnificent material in the Staffordshire Hoard, but the material in the Staffordshire Hoard still doesn't compare with the very best at Sutton Hoo. Things like the purse mounts are just stupendous. So something who find, it just still stands in a league of its own. Staffordshire is magnificent, but when you look at the apex of the, probably the king himself, who might be Raidweld, uh, 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 I think something some who st- still stands there a bit above the rest. Because, um, because the, the thing that we lacked with the Staffordshire is a context for the material. You know, when we excavated, we wanted a pit, a post hole, a pot, some context in which the hoard was buried. Better still, associated structures, you know, buildings around, so that we could get some handle, some understanding of why the hoard was there. And we got nothing. There was indications that there was a mound on the site, but nothing in the way of buildings that we, we could have found. Now, we have ang- excavated Anglo-Saxon palaces, King Edwin's palace at yvering has been excavated. A palace at Old Windsor and Cheddar have been excavated. And you know, they produced nothing in the way of finds. But here we are with a great mass of material and no context. Now, in the recent metal detector survey, they found more objects, a lot of fragments and some important bits, in particular the other cheek piece from the helmet. But what they also got, not on the hoard find spot, at 40 or 50 metres away, they got two copper alloy mounts decorated with interlace made out of copper alloy and gilded. These are similar to a mount that Terry Herbert, who was the initial finder of the Staffordshire Horde, discovered in 2009. Terry's find is best compared to a mount found in Mound 2 at Sutton Hoo. So we're looking at a you know, top level of society. Now, these objects weren't found with the Horde, They're unlike them in nature because they're made of copper alloy, but these suggest that the Anglo-Saxons had visited this field on more than one occasion.
0: So what do you think that the field might have been?
1: Shrine? We've got no structures, but a shrine at that time could have been a big tree. I think that the Staffordshire Horde was ritual deposition, that it was buried as an offering to the gods. A lot of colleagues don't agree. But I think that the very nature of the Staffordshire hoard, in that this hoard contains a lot of material, but there's a lot that's missing. I've done my own work on other finds of Anglo Saxon gold and silver. And the feminine dress fittings made of gold of 7th century date are much more common than pommel caps. We've got about 60 of them, but they're absent. Sword blades are absent. The iron cap from the helmet isn't there. This is a very carefully selected group, ignoring the objects that should be most common. I think it's already been filtered, probably for ritual reasons. So I think we've already moved into the realm of it being a ritual deposit. It also doesn't seem to have been any uh, systematic attempt on behalf of the Anglo-Saxons to destroy the Staffordshire hoard. They've folded the objects and broken them, but they hadn't set out to trash them. I mean, let's face it, with that material, Given two rocks, five minutes, and some malice, you really could do a job.
0: But then again, these objects don't seem like they were buried with reverence because they were mangled to a certain degree. So what do you think was going on there?
1: They were compressed, I think. They were folded up to fit into a smaller space. That might explain why the blades are gone.
0: But if it was a shrine, shouldn't there have been some sustained activity? That's Uh,
1: what we're hoping that these fragments might suggest. They could have been turning up on the field and sacrificing animals. We don't know. There are sacrificial sites on the continent where you've got large quantities of weapons being deposited complete in wet places, not on a hilltop, as we've got with the Staffordshire hoard.
0: So are you now looking for bones or something along those lines? There,
1: there isn't anything
0: there. Well, I
1: don't think there's anything there, because it, as
0: well as the metal detector survey, they
1: carried out intensive field walking on the site, and I haven't right. seen results from what they got from the field walking.
0: Now, the dating currently is Uh sometime after the reign of Penda, probably around the reign of Wolfhair. Given that, and given the presence of Christian objects that have been mangled, if it's a ritual deposit, a a religious deposit, do you think that this is indication that paganism was still holding on in Mercia despite the conversion of the king? Well,
1: firstly, I'm cautious of the late date because the gold from which the hoard was made probably came from the melting down of Merovingian coins. Now, Merovingian coins were pretty fine. They they, they were mostly gold, sort of 94, 96%. And then during the first part of the 7th century, their gold content starts to go down. And then you get to 640, and their gold composition crashes. It falls out the bottom. By 670, Western Europe was on a silver coinage they couldn't get gold anymore, garnets also vanished, elephant ivory vanished, and I find it difficult to believe that this 5.1 kilograms of gold in the Staffordshire Horde would have survived above ground in the face of the gold famine that cut in in the 640s. So I favour an an early date for the deposition. Now, regarding could it have been deposited in the time of Wolfherry, it's possible because the difficulty with converting people who are polytheists, who believe in a number of gods, is, to, is not to convert them to Christianity, but to get them to forget the old lot. Remember Raidwald, with uh, an altar to Christ at one end of a building and an altar at the other end. You, you know, and we've seen elsewhere that the Anglo-Saxon kings were willing to uh, become apostates. If they didn't think, think Christianity was working for them, they could say it back. And, you know, perhaps they did keep a nodding acquaintance with the old gods just in case. I think that the deposition might be earlier. But the whole of the archaeology for this period is a house of straw. It's based on, you know, sort of dead reckoning and
0: guesses. So the late dating is based primarily off of the artwork that's been found on the pommel caps and, and the like, correct?
1: Yes, but the objects with which the Staffordshire hoard is being paralleled are effectively undated. The best dating that we've got is Sutton Hoo, which if it's world is 625. Staffordshire hoard looks like Sutton Hoo. We've got a few pieces in the hoard which are clearly earlier. There's some that might be later. There's the possible reused garnets. We've got a lot of work and a lot of studying to do to get to the bottom of this. If only we could have got some context for the hoard, You know, a building right. that we could date. Our best bet was if we found a building with preserved posts in the bottom of the holes where we could have got a felling date for the trees. Radiocarbon dating is no great help at this period.
0: Well, what about the nearby village of Hammerwich? <laughs> Would that help identify the context of the hoard, perhaps?
1: I don't think so. The term Hammer makes me think of ironsmiths, not the people doing the fine work that we've got in, in the Staffordshire Horde. But I think that's a red herring. Also, you've got to bear in mind that this material wasn't the property of the winners. It's likely to have been, you know, taken in battle and came from elsewhere. Mercia was very expansive, that's the Midland Kingdom where the Horde was found. It was expanding quickly in the 7th century and fighting successful wars against Northumbria, against East Anglia and against Wessex. Any one of these walls could have provided a context for uh, this material being gathered together.
0: Is there any possibility that we might be able to trace the objects to a particular kingdom?
1: Yes, this is where my work, the Portable Antiquities finds fits in, because that's providing us with a, a catalog of material of other objects where we can look at stylistic links and metalworking links, looking at filigree wire being uh, worked in the same way, and other details that might allow us to match back objects in the hoard to particular areas.
0: So yeah. it'll all be done by just studying photographs and saying this one looks more like this one?
1: Y- yes. Um, I often find that the giveaways are the subliminal things, the unconscious things that craftsmen do. On the Staffordshire Hoard, we've got these objects that have got strips with windows set into them, filled with filigree. And it's interesting to see that those windows are marked on the back with crosses, scratched into the back of them, that run right across the little gold plates onto the sides of the object, each side. And they're assembly marks to make sure that the right little filigree decorated plate went into the right hole. And it's that sort of Craftsman's trick, that sort of methods of feeding wire that might allow us to match the Staffordshire hoard back to places of production. And places of production in the 7th century and the 6th century are embarrassingly scarce in in England. We've got them in Wales and Scotland and magnificent ones in in Scandinavia, but nothing in England. No, No actual production sites.
0: So if there wasn't any production sites, were these all just produced either outside of England or in small Sorry. locations?
1: It was all made in England. Stylistically, the, the work is so good it would be difficult to see it being made anywhere outside England.
0: So are you just referring to like the the large industrial yeah, yeah. Uh, villages that like the the Romano British had that sort of thing?
1: Well, um, a site where we've got. Moulds and evidence and crucibles and evidence for metalworking, like we've got at places like Donad up in Argyllshire, of Mark and places like that, that have produced evidence for metalworking, moulds and fragments like that, but they're absent from England. All we have got is one really important grave, a place called Tattersall Thorpe in Lincolnshire, found in 1982, and it was a metalworker's grave. It contained files and hammers, and an anvil, a set of scales, which is important because it showed this manner of interesting precious metals. With the scales were weights that he was using, and one of the weights looks as if it might have been a die for making the waffle pattern foils that were laid underneath the garnets. And on it was a speck of gold. And the Tattishall Thorpe grave also contains five fragments of cut garnet. The man who was buried there if he wasn't doing top-end metalworking himself, he certainly knew people who were. That's our best metalworking site, or fine, that we've got
0: at the moment. Why do you think that the Anglo-Saxons weren't making these production sites? Uh, the like, uh,
1: because the craftsmen doing it were probably itinerant, and their tool kit would fit into a bag that they carried around. The gold that they used wouldn't have been their own. It would have been given to them by their patron craftsmen were attached to courts. They probably lent around. So I think itinerant craftsmen working on a small scale with a the material that they were very careful not to lose.
0: So chances are these objects were made just by a small handful of individual craftsmen.
1: Yes, but people must have been producing a fair bit of the material because the objects in the Staffordshire Hoard show signs of a highly practiced hand, but not much has survived. So, in addition to the Staffordshire hoard, we've got another nine finds of gold pommel caps scattered right across the country, and th- there's one even further west than Hammerwich, and that's the remarkable golden garnet pommel cap from Ludlow in Shropshire, which is incredible because it's Christian, it's decorated with a calvary with three crosses. And of course, there's, there's, there's Christian objects in the hoard.
0: Given that these craftsmen would have been highly practiced, what's your opinion on the folded Latin inscription, considering the fact that it has misspellings on it?
1: I don't know. To begin with, we thought that it was a misquoted copy of the Vulgate, St. Jerome's translation of the Bible, because it differs from the Vulgate. But it has been suggested by someone else that the inscription on the strip, could have come from an otherwise unknown Gallic translation of the Bible. The writing looks competent, but one gets errors in things like the great gospel books are full of errors. People made, made mistakes. I'm puzzled by the second inscription, basically the same Rise Up, O Lord inscription from the Book of Numbers. And to have it on the back, I don't understand. It's certainly not a setting out mark, you know, someone doing a trial before they had a go on the front. That's not how craftsmen work. If you want to cut an inscription onto a piece of gold strip, what you do is cover it with lamp black, you know, with soot. Get it out through the lamp black, get it right, and then once you've got it set out properly, you get out your chisels, your gravers, and begin to cut it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but only one side's inla- inlaid with niello, the other side is uh, just
0: left clean. Well, when I was speaking with Kathy Shingler, she mentioned that there's a tradition of secret writing, having writing on the underside of things for magical purposes. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: The Anglo-Saxons loved riddles and things that were hidden away. We get that in the artwork. You look at a motif and you think, well, is it a man's head or is it it a boar on one of the the pommels? You look at a piece of interlace, it looks like an owl's face, and then we realize that it it wasn't an owl's face, it was two birds facing each other. The motif is hidden in the decoration. The Anglo-Saxons loved riddles like that, of, of visual puns and verbal puns, because we have Anglo-Saxon riddles surviving from the 10th century in the Exeter book. So the, the Anglo-Saxons liked these visual tricks. But the other thing is, Cathy said, that hiding something away, be it an image of an animal or an inscription, Is important in that to know something's name is to control it. And recognizing something gives you an element of control and by hiding them away. And remember that these animals and motifs put onto the object weren't art for art's sake. They had meanings.
0: So with the idea of secrets and riddles and the like, do you think that might have played a role in the underside inscription?
1: I'm troubled by that because it's the same inscription as is on the front. You know, it, it is an inscription that can be read. I actually found a, a 7th century runic inscription myself many years ago. I couldn't believe it. I was drawing an object and then I saw these scratches on it and thought, they're runes. And I drew them and then went home and slept on it and thought, you're, you're fooling yourself. And then I looked at it again and sent up drawings to Professor Page. And the runes have been published a number of times since. And it's quite a thing to, to see the writing that's done so long ago. It's fascinating, Jamie, to understand a motif that's hidden away and you recognize the birds in the decoration and share a sort of visual joke, a riddle with someone who's been dead for 1400 years. It's very humbling to look at what they've done.
0: In other areas, such as astronomy, there's been crowdsourcing for mapping things out, such as craters. And since we have photographs of many of these foil fragments, is there any plan to allow the public to take part in putting all these foil fragments together and try and figure out how they work and what they originally looked like?
1: There's no plans to to do that so far as I know. All the objects are going to be photographed, and there are pieces of computer software that will actually... Do this sort of work, looking for fits between the fragments. But the problem it isn't immense. There are quite a few bits of silver foil, but we should be able to put them together electronically anyway, using the software. I've seen some discussion on the internet and had people contacting me about that with some quite interesting ideas. Like what? People drawing attention to the poem of the Kunthulun Death Song.
0: Have you seen the Kunthulun
1: Death Song?
0: Uh, no, I have not
1: it's truly remarkable yeah. it's a piece of poetry which is dated to the mid-seventh century and it refers to richfield in actual fact it refers to the site at Lificetum, uh wall about a couple of miles away from where the hoard was found we can date the poem because consulan who's referred to in the poem it reads translated into english it's because it's old welsh grandeur in battle extensive spoils moriel bore off from in front of lichfield fifteen hundred cattle from the front of battle four twenties of stallions in equal harness the cheap bishop wretched in his four-cornered house the bookkeeping monks did not protect those who fell in the blood before the splendid warrior i shall lament till i would be in my lowly grave plot for the slaying of cum and famous to every generous man now What were the Welsh doing fighting a battle at Lichfield in the middle of the 7th century? Is this a context for the Horde? I think even I would be sticking my neck out to claim that it was, that it just points to the complexities of the political situation at at the time. And it it is a truly remarkable piece of poetry.
0: My recollection is that Penda at least fought (laughs) with the Welsh on his side against Northumbria.
1: Yes, no. he did. He fought as an ally of Cadwallon. The Mercians looked pretty cosy with the Welsh. I mean, When you've got the death of Edwin, where you've got the Christian Anglo-Saxon king dying in battle when faced with a confederacy of a pagan Anglo-Saxon king, Pender, and a Christian Briton, Cadwallon, you realise that, you know, let's not let ethnicity and religion get in the way of politics. They were rough times, and they said in the Hellenic poems that contain the death song that I've just read that Cunflan did not delay when the son of Pid called. Well, Penda's father was Pida.
0: In some of the stuff that I've read regarding Penda, people have made the argument that he might have had some Welsh ancestry. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I've spoken to scholars who I respect have uh, thought yes but Pender does look as if he could be of Welsh descent. Other people who I respect equally have rubbished it, <laughs> I don't <laughs> believe it at all. I'm just a humble archaeologist, you know, and I don't want to get caught in the crossfire, but the Mercians did seem to uh, get on with the Welsh.
0: Let's go into an area where you are allowed to fight the battle, Then The new 81 objects that were uh, declared treasure got only 12 days ago on the 4th. What have these new objects done to shed light on the Horde? What new opinions have come forward and are coming forward?
1: The most important objects from forming new opinions are the fragments of copper alloy, which point to the Anglo-Saxons having visited that site more than once you know, more than the, the one occasion. that so perhaps they were going back there. Perhaps there was something in that field that was a bit important to them. There is a problem in that all three could have come from the same set.
0: Now, if they came from the same set, what would account for how disparate their placements were? Because my recollection is that the copper that Terry found was a good deal away from the new copper that was found.
1: Yeah, Terry told me that it was found a hundred meters away from the hoard. He told Steve Dean, the Staffordshire County archaeologist, it was found fifty meters away from the hoard. All we can, I think, all we can take it is that uh, it was found some distance away. The recent finds, so it's not associated with the hoard, but it's of the same date and probably quite a good level of society. These objects could have been in the plough soil for the last 1,400 years. They could have been in the plough soil, which explains why they weren't all together. The the hoard is not widely dispersed. The hoard seems to have entered the plough soil in October of 2008. There's very few signs of plough damage on the objects in the hoard. One of the few pieces that has bad plough damage is the second cheek piece which probably explains why it wasn't found in 2009. It had been dragged or buried by
0: the plough. Do we have any more excavations planned for Fred Johnson's field?
1: I don't think so. They might try other geophysical techniques, but we are looking at historical aerial photographs. I'll be looking at my background material to look up at the context of it. There are no rooms so far. Colleagues in East Anglia said that we should have expected runes, but there, but there haven't been any. But things are emerging from under the earth. I don't know of any chance to do any further work on the site. Remember that this, on the first excavation they got 3,500 signs, and this time it's, what, 81? The right. first excavators, assisted by Terry Herbert, did a pretty good job
0: of cleaning up the first time. <laughs> Okay, so that's the end of the Staffordshire Hoard project. Now, if you'd like to learn some more about the Hoard, you can always go to my website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and click on any of the Staffordshire Hoard posts. You're going to find links to the Potteries Museum, the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, and, of course, the Staffordshire Hoard site itself. So please go and check those out. I think you're going to find them interesting. And if you're anywhere near Birmingham or Stoke-on-Trent, please go check out the Hoard. I think you'll find it fascinating. Now, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at TheBritishHistoryPodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to Facebook.com slash British History. And we're on Twitter. Just search for at British Podcast. And, of course, you can join us on the forums. We have some fun conversations going on over there. Just go to TheBritishHistoryPodcast.com. Click Get Involved and click Forums. And next up, we have kings. Well, sort of kings. Mostly warlords. So let's try that again. Next up, we have some very, very bloody men. All right, see you next time.